All right. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks back, uh, Jeffrey Calson sent us uh, an, an email that said, I thought this story might be a good one for Parallax. It was about a question of, uh, of a legal matter being ins- decided currently by an Italian court as to whether Jesus existed. We thought that we'd be able to find someone here at UCD to discuss this, uh, this provocative matter. And uh, Suzanne at the UC Davis News Service put, in contact, put us in contact with Dr. Allison Kuder of the Religious Studies Department. So we had a chance to talk about this. She said she'd be happy to speak with us on the air. And, and joining us now to do just that is Dr. Allison Kuder. Welcome to Radio Parallax. I'm delighted to be here. Now, uh, were you shocked when you heard about the story about an Italian court trying to decide whether Jesus actually exists? I was totally shocked, and I, I was thinking what an amazing idea this must be for most Americans, and the idea that that could be a court case uh, is, is, is astonishing to me. Well, this plaintiff, Luigi Cascioli, is apparently in some kind of tiff with uh, 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 someone he went to seminary with, Enrico Ritti. Cascioli admits that this case in Italy uh, <laughs> doesn't ever, it would take a miracle to win, he says, in Catholic Italy. But he's raising the issue of a couple of uh, possible Italian laws, one meant to protect people against being swindled or conned, and the other against impersonation. Now, yeah, he probably doesn't have much of a chance here with this. I think you said earlier that he doesn't have a prayer. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, what, what I think we have to talk about here is this, whole a notion of the quest for the historical Jesus, which has been an ongoing thing, really, from the last half of the 19th century. So maybe we could get into that. Let's, let's take the plunge. I think Americans would be shocked to realize, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is that Jesus is unknown to historians outside of scriptural references. It's absolutely true. For the first century of the Christian era, there's not a single source outside of Christianity itself and the Gospels and Christians uh, that mention Jesus at all. Uh, There's nothing in so-called pagan literature, uh, and there's really nothing in Jewish literature. Now, we don't have many Jewish texts from the first century. Uh, We have Josephus, which we'll get to in a moment, but for the first hundred years there, there's really virtually no uh, mention of Jesus in any source but Christian sources, and of course, this is very interesting in the sense that obviously Christianity makes such a huge impression on the people who believed in it. So there's this general consensus that everybody must have known who Jesus was, Uh, but we can't find the sources. Now, we do get a few in the second century. This is really a shock because uh, among the ancient historians, uh, Josephus, who you mentioned, we, we, it's just, I, I only want to talk about Josephus. I'm fascinated by this guy because he was a, a Jewish-educated uh, man of, of some, some political influence. When the Roman legions came invading, he apparently told a fortune to Vespasian, the, the general at the head of the Roman legions invading, and became a favorite, later wrote a history. And here we have a first-class ancient historian writing about the time period coming on the heels of the era of Jesus, and, you know, he should have mentioned him. Actually, uh, there is mention of him in the Antiquities of the Jews, but what, uh, and it's a, it's a mention that Christian apologists take as an absolute sign that Jesus existed and that Josephus himself converted. But it's very interesting. It is generally thought by scholars, I think universally thought by scholars, there is part of the statement made by Josephus that he did himself make. He mentions Jesus, but he, 
but the part where he calls Jesus the Messiah was added later by Christians. Because Josephus' text was not accepted by Jews and preserved by Jews. They thought he was a traitor because he had fought against the Romans on the Jewish side, and then he went over and fought for the Romans. So the Jews did not like Josephus and didn't really preserve his text. Christians did. His history pretty much, is pretty much takes the Roman side. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So that's a very interesting source. And as biblical scholars and things have looked at these texts, they sort of um, wheedle out the ones that really don't seem that clear. So the only thing we really have from the second century is the letter from Pliny to the Emperor Trajan, dated about 112 of the Common Era. And there he's asking the emperor what he should do with these Christians because he finds them really so odd. I mean, he's not asking them to give up their beliefs. They can believe anything they want. He just simply wants them to make their obeisance to the emperor, and then they can go off and do whatever they want. But, of course, for Christians, this was not possible. I mean, they could not revere the emperor. They felt that was uh, idolatry, and they couldn't do it. But for Pliny, this was terribly difficult to understand because he, like so many Romans, thought you could have different belief systems, and as long as you did your political duty, then you could have your own private beliefs. So that's the first mention. Well, what's curious to me is that the Romans apparently found the early Christians uh, very unacceptable because there was freedom of religion in the Roman Empire to to worship whichever god or gods you chose, and it was insisted by these people from Judea that, no, no, that was not correct. We are the only correct religion. All others are false, and that, that really offended Roman sensibilities, I understand. Absolutely hit the nail on the head. I mean, Tacitus thought they were very superstitious and very antisocial because they seemed to do their worship in secret. And Tacitus, like many other Romans, couldn't understand what the problem was with them. And it was this claim to a single truth and the idea that there was only one truth and Christians had it. This was very, very difficult for Romans. And, and again, you have to realize that for Romans, religion, state religion, and politics were intimately tied together. And what's very paradoxical, or perhaps ironic is a better word for this, is early Christians begged to have religion and politics disentwined. Hmm. They actually said, look, we will be wonderful Roman citizens. Just let us worship the way we want. Don't make us worship the emperor but we promise we'll be loyal citizens, we'll be patriotic. And it seems so funny to me now that many conservative Christians want to tie together religion and politics. And they clearly haven't, I think, thought through the implications of this and realized how terrible that was for early Christians. Well, it's a shocking thing, but it's a fact. Outside of, of the scriptures, there, there are no references to Jesus. We don't know what's going to happen in the Italian court, but I hope as this evolves, you'll talk to us again about what happened. I'd love to. But before you go, there's a religious matter I, we must address, because you and I were talking about this when I first uh, spoke last week. We have a, a religious matter that's attracting international attention. It was in The Economist, the Jan- January 7th issue. That issue is of uh, the statue of Mary in front of the Vietnamese Catholic Martyrs Church that appeared to be weeping blood. Absolutely. Well, t- let's, let's talk about that. Well, lots of people uh, came to that. Now, I think To understand this, one has to realize that there was a huge tradition, both in in Judaism and Christianity, and in Islam too, 
but of religious weeping. Weeping was a, a kind of ritualistic practice that was done very often by people as an act of contrition. Um, it was expected and, and, and very much encouraged as a sign that one was contrite for one's sin. So there were these sort of movements of weeping. When we get to the virgin weeping and weeping blood, this is particularly interesting because the notion here is that she is weeping because of the death of her son, and so her tears are sort of conflated with the loss of Jesus' blood in the crucifixion. So that is an old sort of analogy. The tears of the Virgin for the blood of the Son goes back a long, long time. Well, Dr. Kader, it just so happened that you, you gave me a call after I, I contacted uh, Suzanne last week, and it so happened I was standing in front of the statue. And I, I think I need to report for our listeners what, what I told you, what my observations were, w- which was that I was looking at The Economist in, in my hand, which showed the, the statue to be flesh-toned. It was quite red, uh, the streaks. At this point in time, you can no longer see the red streaks. There's only a smudge on, on the, the statue's left cheek. But clearly, the statue is very pale as it presently stands, but the picture shows it to be very much flesh-toned. So either the picture was enhanced in Photoshop to make look, uh, make look more like skin, or the statue did look that way, and now the pigment that apparently was added has washed off in the rain. That's my conclusion. Well, you're taking a good, rational conclusion, <laughs> but I think religious people will have none of that. Clearly, this is a kind of miracle, and it, it appeals to people very much. I mean, after all, the Virgin Mary is the great intercessor. Uh, she is the one who pleads to God and Jesus for the life of the, the eternal life of individuals. So, you know, the fact that she cries, I mean, has huge religious, spiritual significance for people. You're being sort of a nice, positivistic, reductionist and trying to look for causes here. But the notion that blood has appeared on statues, again, goes way back. And you can go on the web and you can find all these people who've tried to give scientific explanations or suggested that people were duplicitous and, you know, did this. But I think the most important thing is to understand how believers take this and what it means to them. Well, I was very impressed. The, the statues out in the, the parking lot, people, cars were coming in, cars were leaving. They're, they're sitting down in folding chairs. Numerous people are praying. They appeared to be some Vietnamese people were praying. Uh, maybe a, I think a couple of Filipino ladies had come in. Uh, lots of different background Catholics of different, uh, different stripes, and they all seem to be very, uh, very taken by, by the visage of the statue. Well, I think it just shows we do not live by bread alone. <laughs> Dr. Allison Kuder, we, we appreciate very much your speaking with us and hope that you'll come back in a couple of weeks as this case continues to develop in Italy and we can talk a little bit more about perhaps the early Christian church. I love it. Thank you. take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll be back in segment three to talk about a true American hero, Warrant Officer Hugh Thompson, who passed away two weeks ago. Stay tuned. 